If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we're happening with our Vine Kids uh, programs. We also have middle school age, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th in that window. They meet right back here in kind of our new back 40 area over there. We'd love for them to be a part of that as, uh, as well. If you missed our announcements, Tom, happy Mother's Day. We are glad that you are here. Um, if you are a mom, we are uh, really glad that you're here. And uh, if you have a mom, we're really glad that you have a mom. So uh, fantastic. So text your mom if she's not here. Call her. Tell her you love her. Tell her thank you for carrying you around for all that time. Um, so that reminds me I probably should text mine. So we're glad you're here. Your special Mother's Day sermon is not really, that was it. So uh, hang on, that was a good one. Uh, we're going to be doing a little something different out of First Peter this morning. Before we get there, every um, week directly following that we serve communion, we take a moment as a community and we just share needs and prayer concerns and requests. We do this for a couple of reasons. One, because we want to be a part of each other's lives. It's, it's important to us. We want to take time to, to share these things that we're taking before the Lord and, and offer them up and pray for them together. Two, because the Christian life is meant to be lived in community. It's meant to be lived with people that know you and that um, know your heart and will, willing to pray for each other and support each other through life's wonderful times and those triumphs and through life's most difficult times and those struggles. And so we want to take a few minutes just during the month just to say, hey, look, Lord, we come before you as an imperfect group of people um, asking for your protection and your provision and your hand. And we do it corporately because the body is an important part of what it looks like to follow you. And so we take a few things. We raise your hand if you've got something. I jot them down and then I just kind of pray over them as a way of knowing that God hears our collective heart, but that we can share that heart together um, as a community. And so what kind of prayer requests or joys and things do we have that we want to bring before the Lord um, this morning? Yes, ma'am. and she's done really, really well, except for her hip keeps being dislocated. And so it's excruciating, and she has to go to the hospital, and they have to put her to sleep and have to put it back in the place, and it's not a good deal. And her husband, he's about ready to go crazy. Right. And I just want to cry every time. Sure. But anyway, pray for Vicki especially, okay. Benny, that her hip will heal. You got it. Gay has asked us to pray for her friend Vicky, who's had some hip issues and is, is not recovering like we were hoping for. We're going to pray for them and pray for her pain. Um, yes, sir, Mr. Yaley. Uh, our neighbor, her name is Trevlin, just got diagnosed with cancer. Okay. We will absolutely be praying for, um, for her. We'll pray for God's healing, his provision. Yes, Miss Rhonda? Your hand, is that what you're pointing to? I don't know if you guys are fully aware, but Miss Rhonda's had some hand issues, to say the least, to put it mildly. And so she's had multiple surgeries, and it's still not healing quite like we had all hoped, and kind of like we all need it to. So we're uh, praying for her healing of her hand, absolutely. Miss Linda? Nothing? Did you raise your hand or no? Yep. 
So Linda wants us to keep praying for her, to pray for the church. Also, Miss Linda met a young lady this week. Um, met her at the bus station, young, young girl who is coming to town and didn't have anywhere to go and nowhere to stay. And like Miss Linda always does, she just sits there for about three hours and talks to her about Jesus. And uh, it's pretty awesome. And so we got to meet her, Brandon and Jenny, spent a little time with her this week as well, trying to help her out. But that's the young lady that Miss Linda is referring to. What else can we pray for or lift up this morning? Anybody else have a need or a concern or something they would like us to pray over? Bruce? And Monica? Okay. Okay, son's wife's mom. Gotcha. So Bruce and Dorothy uh, lost a family member this week. Funeral is this Friday, and not here in the city, but in another state. Miss Bonnie. Fantastic. Last week we prayed that they would close on their house. It happened, and so God is good. So everything will be wrapped up in Illinois, right? And so we fully focus on being here in Oklahoma City. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Anybody else? Prayer, concern, need, things they just want to offer up before the Lord? Well, as we take these things together, remember I say this each time we do this, God hears our collective heart. He knows what you're praying before you even utter those things. And so as I pray over these things, I encourage you to just pray along with me or other things that are going on in your life or that you know about that you just didn't want to lift up. God hears all of those things. He hears all of our hearts um, and encourages us and calls us to pray together as a community. So let's take these things um, before the Lord um, this morning. God, we are infinitely grateful that you hear every prayer request and need that we have before they ever cross our lips. God, you tell us in Scripture that you actually know what we need before we ever ask. Oftentimes the things we pray for, Lord, they're just our worldly attempt to try and fix what hurts. And so, Lord, before we even begin this process of prayer, we just ask you to be God. We ask you for the things that we don't know, that they would fit in accordance to your will. We ask you, Lord, that in all of these things you would bring glory to yourself, whether tragedy and death, or Father, whether celebrations and answered prayers. God, we ask that you would be glorified. So Lord, we imperfectly come before you with an imperfect list and things that we just bring before you, God, together as a community this morning. Lord, we pray alongside Tim and Gay and pray for their friends. We pray for Vicki. We pray for healing of her hip. As painful and complicated as that may be, Lord, we ask that you would just have your hand on her and that, Lord, you would just do something amazing there, that she would feel no more pain and that, Lord, that you would bring about the healing of her body. We pray with the Yaleys. We pray for their neighbor who, um, Lord, was just diagnosed with cancer and what that means and the difficulties that lay ahead and the dealing with the diagnosis and all of those pieces. But, God, we pray for comfort and healing and victory. We pray that you would give them the window of just ministry and support to love on their neighbor. God, to be a part of their life and to walk through this with them. Lord, we pray with Rhonda. We ask, God, that you would continue to bring healing to her hand. Those surgeries, as difficult as they have been, the healing process seems to be harder. God, we ask that you would let that go quickly, that physical therapy would go well, and that, Lord, that the hand would be useful and pain-free. Lord, we thank you for Miss Linda and her heartbeat for the gospel. We thank you that she loves the people around her really well. 
We thank you that she continues to pray for this community. We ask that you would give her strength to be a light in her neighborhood and in her building and in her community. We thank you for the way that she just meets people and likes to talk about Jesus. And so, Lord, we uh, pray for the young lady she met this week and just ask, God, that you would have your hand on her and that, Lord, you would guide her steps. Lord, we pray alongside Bruce and Dorothy as they've suffered some loss this week. We ask that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would comfort those that mourn, and that, God, you would use this as an opportunity that people might see you and your eternal nature of who you are. Lord, we celebrate with Bonnie and the closing of their house the victory that comes with kind of letting go of that worry and all the things that can be focused on now. We thank you for answering those prayers. Lord, the truth is that there are those of us that are gathered in this place this morning that have all kinds of needs and requests that we don't want to say out loud. Fears and anxieties and struggles and heartaches and hurts. Things that we are uh, battling with secretly. Things that no one knows about. Temptations and struggles and failures. There's anxiety and worry that have captured a lot of our hearts. Lord, the truth is, is that we are in desperate need of you. This room is made up of imperfect people. People with broken relationships. People with struggles that seem insurmountable, financial issues, marital issues, relationship issues, pressures, work-related, non-work-related, you name it, Lord, we've probably got it in here. But in the middle of all that, Lord, we trust that you are God. We believe that you are who you say you are. And Lord, we put our feet firmly on that foundation. And as we'll see today, that you have not forgotten us, that you have called us and chosen us as your children. And we have a hope that is alive in Jesus Christ. No matter what this world throws at it, no matter what this prince of this world, the enemy of this faith that we have throws at us, we will not be swayed because you are God. You are already victorious. And we have all of that in you. And so, Lord, this morning as we transition from our prayer time to opening your word, God, what we do is we pray that you would teach us, that you would empower us, that you would activate this gift of faith that you put in our life to trust that you are who you say you are. And even in life's most difficult times, the most uncertain times, that you would give us an anchor of truth that we could hook our lives to, to trust that you are God. And that you love us. And that you are for us. And so, Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. We lift up these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So like I mentioned, we're in between this kind of uh, little bit of our, our break in the Gospel of John. And then we'll be starting this new series this summer as we kind of look at lives that have been changed throughout the Old Testament. The New Testament have been changed by encounters with the Lord. Ordinary people that have had God step into their space, <clears throat> excuse me, into their world and change their hearts both for the good and sometimes for the difficult. Um, but before we got there, we decided we'd start in June and kind of go through the summer, which left us kind of May. And so what Brandon and I decided we would do is just open up our hearts a little bit to the things that God is teaching us, that we would just kind of 
kind of let pour out or pour over. And last week, Brandon was in Second Peter, and we talked about the evidence of the faith of the community that is shown in their children. And he, if you haven't been on Realm, he actually posted on Realm a whole bunch of different ways that you can get involved in our own neighborhood directly if you have God tugging at your heart to love and serve the people and the children of the city. There's some great opportunities. Uh, we'd love for you to get on Realm. Check that out. And let us know that you want to serve and we'll help make those connections. Because part of the great challenge, of course, is following Christ is taking what we're doing in here and living it out there, right? I mean, that's really where the sort of life of a Christ follower meets the reality is when we walk out of these places going, man, that's what God's word says. How do I begin to trust that, to live that out, to let that be a part of my life? outside these walls, right? So that becomes the, the challenge in all this is how, God, do I live out my faith in Christ? How do I live out the convictions and things you're placing in me? So that's a great way to begin on that list. Look at some of those things. See if there's something that resonates with your, your heart and let us know, and we'd love to kind of plug you in. This morning, we're going to move in a little different trajectory. We're going to talk a little bit about hope. I've really been struck with this idea over the past few weeks and months as I've just thought about my own life and, and what I truly believe about who God is and how that should transform the way that I live. If I really believe that God is who he says he is, if I truly believe that he has not forgotten me, that he has called me, how that hope in Christ should change everything in me. And we get a picture in the letter of 1 Peter that, that Peter is telling this scattered group of believers that are all over Asia Minor, both Jewish and Gentile believers, that are living in some of the most difficult situation, situations that anybody can imagine, that he's telling them that God hasn't forgotten them, that they should have this living hope that is alive, that gives them joy and some place that they can anchor their hearts to. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first part of that letter of 1 Peter, and we're going to talk about this idea of hope and how biblical hope is so much different than how we see and use the idea and word of hope today. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, if you notice, we got a whole bunch of new Bibles. So Allie Tatum's mom is amazing, and she came on Easter. She's like, you guys don't have enough Bibles. So she just got us a whole bunch more. So the thing with our Bibles is this. If you don't have one, we really want you to keep it, right? So... Take it with you. Um, you are not going to get punished. Um, Jesus is not going to give you a punishment for that. So you are good. Put it in your purse. Take it with you. Bring it back. Give it away. Whatever. Um, we have this amazing lady who just buys us new ones every time we need them. So just take them. Um, we would love for, uh, for you to do that. Um, but we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me give you a quick little kind of rem- reminder about the first book of 1 Peter before we dive into it. So Peter's letter, his first letter is actually... It's different than most of the New Testament letters because it's not written to a specific church or people group, um, and it's not written to address a specific heresy or sort of brokenness. A lot of Paul's letters were written to certain people groups, the churches in Galatia or Colossae or Philippi or wherever, or he was writing to Timothy and all these kind of things, right? But 1 Peter was written, and he actually tells us it's written to the believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is that sort of giant landmass that makes up modern-day Turkey. It's in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea, for those of you that have sort of a geography mindset. It's a a massive piece of land, and there were a lot of believers that were scattered all over there. As Paul had made his missionary journeys, people had come to know Christ. They were in these towns and these places. They were Jewish believers. They were Gentile believers, um, and they were all kind of mixed there throughout. So Peter's letter was meant to be circulated amongst all of those 
different groups of people in churches. And what would happen is, and I'll tell a bit more about this in a minute, is they would take this letter from location to location to location, and the church would read it and study it and celebrate it. And Peter's letter is actually written to cover a whole gamut of things that happen in the Christian life. It's, it's not just a letter about, hey, do this one thing. It covers everything from marriage to trust to serving to passion to holiness. But the first part of his letter is really written around this idea of hope. It's, it's written around that because this group of people were facing an intense persecution, like nothing that any of us would ever, ever be able to know or even contemplate. We're going to talk a little bit more of that as we get into it. But let's take a moment. Let's go and look at First Peter, and then I'll uh, give you some things that we can hang on to this morning. So let's pray before we, uh, we dive into it together. Lord, I do thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. I just thank you for your word that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. You tell us that it, that it uh, judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that it divides joint and marrow, soul and spirit, God. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we do not take that lightly. This is not some guidebook for our life. It is your very love poured out for us. It is true, and it is real. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts through it this morning, that you would turn our understanding of hope upside down as we read its words, press into our heart. Ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Just kind of in your stillness of your heart as you sit here, just say, Lord, I want you to teach me something this morning that you want me to know. Just right there as you sit, ask the Lord to teach your heart. Pray for someone beside you, <clears throat> excuse me, in front of you, behind you. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we come before you this morning. We ask you to use your word to teach our hearts that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. We're going to look at the first nine verses this morning of 1 Peter, and uh, then we'll just kind of work through them a little bit. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and the sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power till the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you do not have seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy." For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So it's quite an intro uh, to this letter that we see. And, and Brandon mentioned that last week. Like letters are, 
they're really powerful, right? We don't write them anymore, but this introduction is, is really powerful. And it gives you a picture of who Peter's writing to. He's writing to these believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor. Now, I've mentioned this before when we've gone through pieces of this letter, others like it. There's a few things you have to understand kind of contextually in order to make this, <coughs> excuse me, make this letter really as powerful as it would have been to those first century believers. And the first thing we've got to understand is that persecution was extremely real. So in our Western culture, we don't really have a picture or understanding of persecution, right? The worst that's ever happened to us in high school, maybe if you went to a youth group or you carried your Bible anywhere, is that someone would make fun of you for carrying your Bible around, right? You were a Bible beater or whatever it was, or they would make, but that's like the extent of that persecution, or someone would laugh at you or say you're ridiculous for believing that God is real. But for most of us, we've never faced any type of persecution. We've never faced the reality of job loss, excommunication from our family, uh, or even death or imprisonment. But for a a huge part of the world, even today, that is a very real part of the Christian faith. There are people all over um, the world that are being martyred to this day for their faith in Christ. In countries that you can read about, where Christians are still being gathered up and slaughtered for their faith in Christ. Well, in those days, at the time that Peter wrote this letter, persecution was extremely real. They were facing every day the reality that they woke up, today might be the day that I die for my faith in Christ, right? You think you have worries and anxieties about how you're going to make your financial ends meet, or, you know, are my kids going to do this, or are we going to do this? Imagine adding to that is today the day they might take my children. For our faith in Christ is today the day we might lose our lives. Persecution was incredibly, um, it was incredibly, incredibly real. We also know that it wasn't a Christian culture, right? We live in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma, in a predominantly Christian culture. What that means is that no one's going to really look down upon you because you go to church on Sunday morning, right? In fact, a lot of our schools still actually don't give much homework on Wednesdays because Wednesdays tend to be church nights for families, right? The Oklahoman still prints a little prayer at the top of it. We still have prayer before most of our events. We live in a very Christian culture where we are. Now, not all the places in the world are like that, of course. Not all places in the United States are like that. But here we live in a very predominantly Christian culture. Most likely, questions you get asked all the time about your family or where do your kids go to school or where do you go to church or all those things. Like the faith component of following Christ is, is very much a part of our sort of woven culture. Now, it may not feel that way all the time, but it is definitely the true. In those days, there was no such thing as a Christian culture. You may be one of six Christians in your entire city. You may be the only believer in your entire family. You did not have a great-grandmother or a grandmother or even most likely a mom who sowed into you the roots and truths of faith. These were things that you were coming to as a first-generation believer. There wasn't a, a safety net of believers to fall back on. You couldn't just go and discuss these things with the people in your town or your gatherings or your city because the entire culture was pagan, right? And the third thing that we know about all of this, that persecution was real, that um, these are not Christian cultures, is that the church was very different than from what we know today. Now, that may seem like an understatement, right? All of us know that. But I want you to understand just how different the church was. The church was not a place. It was not a building. It was not a location, the church was not a place that we went to for programs, for things, for youth group, for child care, divorce care, right? It wasn't a place that we gathered to go and be <clears throat> taught 
It wasn't a building. There was no adobe red brick kind of thing on the main street of town that had a sign that say, hot in the desert, our church is prayer conditioned or whatever. Like there was none of that. The church met out of necessity and out of need. They gathered together because they needed to be together for two reasons. One, to grow into worship and two, to share their needs and resources. The church existed as a place where believers in a very non-believing culture could come together and circulate letters like 1 Peter's. They could teach, they could worship, they could pray over each other, and they could bring their common resources and share them and say, do you have a need? Do you need this? Do you have food? Do you have clothing? Let's pool our resources and live as a community that can honor God together. It was not a consumer-driven place like our Western church is today. The church building did not compete with the other church buildings on the block to see who could have the most people on a non-Easter Sunday, right? It didn't fight over those consumer things that say, let's be so attractive to culture that they want to come here. The church originally was built as an underground, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, place for believers to gather, to share resources, and to grow so that they could live out there and take the gospel. The church was not the hub for the outside world to come in and hear the gospel, which is how most of us see the church today. I'm just going to invite my neighbor to come to church. That way they can hear Trev or Brandon or somebody talk about Jesus. The way the church functioned in those days is that you would tell your neighbor about Jesus, and once they came to know Christ, you would feel safe enough to bring them into the fold of the community. So it's a very different picture than what we have today. Now, I want you to hang on to that because it is important that we understand those, those things because this letter makes no sense really without it. So he gives this really cool introduction, right? He says, hey, look, to all the believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, etc., he says, I want you to understand a couple of things. To those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, grace and peace be with you. Now, this is what Peter's basically saying as this letter goes from town to town to town and a group of people that are persecuted and that are struggling and that are facing real, difficult life choices on a daily basis. He says, you have been chosen by God. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, God has chosen you and he has not forgotten you. Now, you got to imagine yourself, right, tucked into a little corner of the world where there's only eight other believers, and every day you're wondering if today, <clears throat> excuse me, is the day that you might die for your faith, how lonely that might feel, how petrifying that might feel that, that God, you did this, you called me, you, you saved me, but for what? So that I could be isolated in my community, right? So that I could face death, so that I could go through all these struggles? Is this what I gave up? All of that for, those questions are real. What Peter's letter basically says is that I want you to remember that God has chosen you and that he has not forgotten you. A lot of us live lives where we wonder those things, right? Has God forgotten me? I look around me and everybody else, all their families seem to have it together. They seem to at least be able to put those pieces together, whether they're, they're sort of the way their children are, or their financial situations, or they just seem to have all these things that are going right for them. And I just wonder if God <coughs> has forgotten me. And what Peter's reminding that as a follower of Christ, it wasn't your doing. God chose you. He took the initiative with you and with creation. He says, I 
I'm choosing you, and I have not forgotten you, which would have been incredibly important for those believers. I don't know how many people I come in contact with, a month, with during the month where I feel like all they want to hear or need to know is that God hasn't forgotten them. And the reality of, of, of surrendering your life to Christ is that you are very much in God's will, and he has not forgotten you. And so he says, grace and peace be with you in abundance. Then he goes on and says, praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never fade, perish, or spoil. So he says, listen, grace be yours in Christ, right? I want you to understand that you have been given new birth into a living hope. Now, for this group of people scattered all over this place, this region, right, hope was not something that most of them were anchored to, right? Hope was something that maybe was some, something in the distance, but was it really a, a daily thing that I sort of sunk my life into because life was really hard. Persecution was very real. I feel very much alone. But hope from a biblical standpoint is very different from hope from a kind of a worldly standpoint or even how we use it today. So we use the idea of hope today to express uncertainty, right? I hope that it stops raining so that we can be outside. My hope is that there's not traffic on Broadway extension so I can make it home on time, right? We express hope as a way of saying something that we're not sure about, that we really do hope or put our sort of belief in if it comes to pass, then things will be good. But it's based on uncertainty. It's based on what we don't know, what we can't control, and it's based in this realm of just kind of going, we'll see. That's how we understand the word. Uh, throughout Scripture, the hope is used that way, but predominantly in Scripture, hope is used in terms of certainty as opposed to uncertainty. So look at this verse for a minute. Paul says this. He says, Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the way that Paul's use, or excuse me, the way that Peter's using that term is he's saying, Grace be with you. He has given us new birth, which we all know as followers of Christ, we've been born again. But what we've been born again into is something incredible because it is a living and alive and fully expectant hope because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that hope for the believer, hope from a biblical sense, is something that is built on confident expectation. It is not built on uncertainty. Like, I wonder what's going to happen. We know that Christ was raised from the dead, and we know that we have life in him, and we know that that new life is absolutely 100% certain in Christ. And we not only can put our hope in that, but we can put our hope in the fact that it will never fade or perish or spoil that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven. And so what Paul is saying is that no matter what this world throws at you, no matter how hard it is, Paul, I keep saying Paul, no matter what Peter says, no matter how hard this world is, no matter what it throws at you, no matter how difficult it is, you have the firm, expectant hope that the resurrection of Christ is real and that you have absolute new life in that hope, which means God has not forgotten you, that God is very much moving, and that you can be confident and expect 
the incredible things that God has in store for you. A lot of us look at our Christian lives as sort of this wishful thinking. You know, if God will maybe just do this, then this. But we don't really ask that much because we don't want to be disappointed when it doesn't come about. Hope in a biblical sense is the idea that I confidently believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything else in this world may fall apart. But I have this confident expectation that not only is Jesus who he says he is, but he keeps his promises. And there is something that waits for me that begins in this moment that is bigger and better than anything else this world could ever offer. It is never going to fade or spoil. And it is an inheritance that begins the moment my new life is born in Christ. It means that our living hope comes the day that we surrender to Jesus. And it is built on the confident expectation that not only is there something incredible that waits for you, right? But today in this very moment, we have been given brand new life in Christ, which means we can look differently at everything. We can see the world differently. You can see your struggles differently. They are not hopeless things that are built on the uncertainty of what the future might hold. We know what the future holds. Jesus wins. Not only does he conquer sin and death, but he promises eternal life and he promises abundant, full life right now, even in the middle of all of life's turmoils. That we have the confident expectation that Jesus wins, overcomes, and is victorious, which means your struggles of this world will not own you. They don't win in the end. Heck, they don't win the day. They don't get that right. Your fears, your uncertainties, your struggles do not get the right to win over the things that we know to be true about Jesus. And so Jesus says, you have been born into this living hope. Right? Peter articulates those things. You have been born into a living hope. When I think about my own life, right, it's really hard to define my hope as living. Something that's alive and victorious and moving, and encapsulating, like an organism. Hope is just something that's out there that I, I kind of just, kind of just expect to something good, maybe. But the way that Peter describes it is that if we have life in Christ, it is this living, breathing thing that wins in my life, that I can fully hope, vibrantly alive in that hope. That it's not me just going, okay, I'm going to put this over there and just hope that God does something. No, it's me going, I know and expect that God will do exactly what he says he does. And so that darkness in my heart does not get to rule me. He's given me life in Christ, right? So listen to what Peter goes on to say. <clears throat> Let's jump down to verse 6. He goes on to say, in this, right, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. In all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in the glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he said, look, you're going to rejoice in the fact that your faith produces an inheritance which will never fade or foil. He says, although now and for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So what Peter says is that your faith and hope in Christ, which is living, does not prevent the trials 
that come. So just because you say yes to Christ, surrender your life, does not mean that trials and persecutions will not come. He says, though for now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief of all kinds. <coughs> Excuse me. So he's saying to this scattered group of people, look, here's the truth. This world is hard. Brandon says all the time, no one gets out of it unscathed. It's difficult. And you may face all kinds of grief here. You may lose people that you love. You may struggle making ends meet. You may walk through really difficult times in your relationships. You may feel outcast or forgotten or like you have no one. He goes, those things are very real. You may suffer griefs in this world of all kinds. But what he's saying is this, they're not meaningless. Listen to how he explains this, how Peter explains this. You're going to suffer those things, right? They have come, verse 7, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. So he says, your, these trials, these struggles, these griefs, they have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes. So if you think about the greatest natural resources that we have, right, the majority of the world forever would have said gold. And that gold goes through this refining process where it gets melted down and the impurities are scraped off. And it goes through this purity process and purity process. And what's left is, is what we believe to be the most valuable metal, if you, if you will, on earth. And he says, even that, it'll disappear. It'll perish. No matter how many times it's put through that refining process, scraped up, burned up, made pure, it's still going to, at the end of the day, it's going to perish. He said, but your faith, when it's put through those things is like gold, when it's put through struggles and trials and grieves, it's like the refining process of gold. Your faith becomes more pure, and it becomes stronger, and it becomes more valuable. But the difference between that and gold is in the end, your faith will never perish. Because it is bringing you to something that will never end. And so what, what Peter's saying here is this, is that your trials and struggles and griefs aren't meaningless. God is allowing them and working through them to draw you through a process which is bringing about the purity and the, the depth and the growth of your faith so that it will be proved pure, but more importantly, so that he may receive all the glory and honor, may be proved genuine, and that it will result in the glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When you look, when I look, I'll take that back. When I look at my struggles and my trials and the griefs that I face, it's always through my lens how this is affecting me. My life is hard. My life is a struggle. God, my life is this. My life is that. Why am I walking through this? This hurts. This is difficult. It's always through that lens. What Peter gives us a glimpse into is that what if we didn't see all of our trials and struggle and griefs just through the lens of ourselves? What if we saw them through the lens of being able to live in a way that would honor and glorify Jesus? 
So God, I know I'm walking through this thing, and it is so hard, and I don't know why, and I'm not saying it's, it's easy, I'm not brushing under the rug, but I want my faith to be proved genuine. I want to trust you right here in the middle of this. I want my hope to be fully alive, that in the middle of this thing that I don't fully understand, I want to believe that you are, you say you are, so that my faith may be proved genuine, so that I may really truly trust in you, and so that you might receive glory, honor, and praise on the other side of this, and through it, and in it. For most of us, our desire is just that we make it out. That's our end goal for every trial and every struggle and every grief is that we just get to the other side. I finally made it. Most of you, when you struggle with something, myself included, our whole goal is just to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. From point A to point B. But what Peter's saying is that What happens between point A and point B is really important. It's not a waste of time. It's an opportunity for God to mature and grow and sanctify your heart. It's an opportunity for your faith to be refined over and over again because the next thing that comes will be real too. And how much more are we prepared for the next struggle this life throws if we've walked through the faith of walking through this peace? God, you brought me through that. Not only did you bring me through that, but God, you strengthened me. And my trust for you is real. And so when I face this next wave, however big it is, I know that it will not topple or kill me. Because you are my God. And you have strengthened and refined me. And I will welcome it. Because in the middle of it is the opportunity for you to receive glory and honor, and for me to trust you and be refined over and over and over again. And I know how hard it is to actually be able to say those things about the struggles that you face, but that's what Peter is telling this group of people. The persecution is real, the isolation is real, the loneliness is real, the heartache is real, the griefs are real, the death, the loss, those things are very real. And I'm not saying just brush over it, but what I am saying in the middle of it is find the meaning in it. God, what are you doing? What are you showing me? How can I trust you more? How are you preparing me for whatever may come? How are you readying my heart and my faith so that I might stand in the presence of all that life throws at me and say, I trust that you are very much God. And that my hope is not that you will get me to the other side, but my hope is a confident expectation that you will walk me through it all. And that in that and through that and at the end of that, that my faith in you will be strong and that you will be glorified. Then Peter ties it all together with this. He says, though you have not seen him, right? He's writing to, now this is Peter who has seen Jesus, but he's writing to a group of people that haven't. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If there's ever been a line in Scripture that is written for you and for me, right? Gather together as a church this morning. Though you have not seen him, none of us have physically seen Christ, right? We didn't walk the earth with Jesus like Peter did. We haven't seen him, but we love him. We are gathered in this place because of our common love for Jesus. Though we not see him now, We believe in him. And then Peter says this, and because of those things, you are filled with an inexpressible joy. Think about what these men and women and and families are facing. 
Unlike Peter, they haven't seen Jesus. They don't see Jesus standing with them right now. But they love him and they believe in him. And in the middle of all that life is throwing at them, Peter says, you are filled with an inexpressible joy. I've never seen Jesus physically manifested. I've never seen him. I don't see him right now. But my entire life is built on the fact that I love him and that I believe in him. And the result of those things should be an inexpressible joy. And if it's not, I've got to start asking myself a bunch of questions. Am I fully trusting and believing that Jesus is who he says he is? Is he my expectant living hope? Because if those things are true, then even in life's most difficult moments, there should be welling up inside of me this inexpressible joy. And I'm not talking about hand-clapping happiness, like put on a smile face, the smiley face, the sun's out. I'm talking about something that wells up in my soul that just says there is something so much more. And that even though life should be knocking me out, I know it doesn't win. And I am filled with an inexpressible joy. I don't know, man. I've been in a lot of churches in my life. I've served in a lot of churches. I've, I've been a part of the church since I was six. I don't know how, I don't, I don't, let me put it this way. I don't know if I could ever really express that I feel like our churches are filled with people that have an inexpressible joy. I feel like the churches that I've been a part of have people like that, but as a whole, I would never classify that that was the picture of the people of God. Because I truly believe that we've sunk our hope into something that's not fully alive. We've got this hybrid of hope that believes that Jesus is real, but is fully kind of dwelling or living in our own abilities. And what it produces is restlessness. It produces a lack of peace. It produces sadness. It produces mediocrity. When we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but we attempt to burden and carry and labor all of these things in this world on our own, it doesn't lead to an inexpressible joy. It leads to a burdened, restless, peaceless heart. And I deeply believe the majority of our churches are filled with people that should be from the depths of their soul crying out with this inexpressible joy because God has promised them something that is very real and begins today and has no end. And that he is the overcomer and he is victorious and no matter what this world throws at us, he is refining our faith to stand and to bring him glory. And instead we try and walk through every one of life's turbulent struggles on our own. We try and get from point A to point B and don't care what happens in the middle as long as we get out. And we wonder why wave after wave after wave after wave seem to be the definition of our lives. Because all we can see are the waves. Because that's what people do that rely on themselves. They're just looking for what comes next. 
But if we have a true living hope in Christ, that he is very much alive and that we have very much this expectant truth that not only is he victorious, but that he has promised me something that is so much greater, that he will refine my faith, that I'm not seeing life as a series of waves of what's coming next. But I see life as a series of opportunities to strengthen my faith and to tell the world about a God that has saved me. And it brings about in me an inexpressible joy because I know those waves should kill me, but they will not. They will not be victorious, and they're not going to be victorious in the end, and they're not going to be victorious today. Because nothing steals my living hope. That's what I was born into. Peter says, you have been born new into a living hope, which means your entire outlook should be different than the world's. As I think about my own life, right, there's so much here that I long for to understand this full, living, joyful, inexpressible hope that is in Christ. To not see life as a series of struggles and things and what's coming next, but to see life as a series of opportunities in which Jesus can strengthen and grow me and in which I can proclaim to the world that he is the Savior of all. And that no matter what life comes, no matter what throws at me, what grief or trial, it doesn't win. And you know what? Even today's struggle doesn't win because I've been born into something totally different. Out of this world, out of this context, I've been born into a living hope. So if you've been born new as a follower of Jesus Christ into something new, then you do not have to live by the rules of this world. So today my challenge as we walk out of this place, right, as we, as we close our time in worship, is to ask ourselves, is my, is my life in Christ fully alive? Am I fully reliant upon him to where I am built with this living hope, with this inexpressible joy in which my trials and struggles aren't just difficult things, but they're opportunities in which Jesus is shaping me to be like him. That I can choose how I see the world and see my life. Or am I going to settle for living in restless, peaceless mediocrity? that relies on my own strengths and my own ability to even see things while pretending to believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. At some point in time, something's got to give or this life is just long and hard. But we've been born into something new, a living, breathing hope that is fully alive. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather on this that God you have given us hope in Christ and that we do not have to settle for what life hands us we are victorious in Jesus that the things that we go through are not meaningless but they are opportunities for you to grow us and strengthen us so that our faith may be proved genuine God, fill us with an inexpressible joy that comes from knowing and believing in the true Savior of the world. As we close our time in worship this morning, let's stand together and make these proclamations as we worship the God who has given us joy and given us reason to worship. Let's stand together.